hey everyone thank you for watching us today with me oscar he is an entrepreneur uh, owner of design with value company ux designer growth hacker and co-creator of sassy Dub podcast welcome to the goodest show the show on SaaS marketing from actionable tips and tricks to insightful interviews with industry leaders Hey, Oscar, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and we have some great topics today and I'm super excited to talk about all product design, product-led growth, UX design. Very excited to be here. Yeah, we are, we are so honored to, to have you. Um, so, Oscar, maybe to open this conversation and to start with, can you uh, tell a little bit more about yourself, about your journey, about uh, how, how you ended up in the SaaS industry? So, as you already mentioned, I am UX designer and growth hacker and I started more than six years ago. And back in the day, I was just UX designer and UI designer. So I helped small companies to design websites, design screens for their apps and just the basic stuff, I would say. I'm actually from Austria and four years ago, I moved to Munich, Germany, and I worked at Metafinance. Metafinance is a wholly owned subsidiary of Allianz Technology SE. And basically what we did at Metafinance, I was in the design team. We had five people and we designed screens. We improved websites like the conversion rate, but we also developed like internal software for employees from Metafinance, but also for employees for Allianz. And my job was to build those products, to design the whole experience for our customers, the end-to-end -end journey, and also to get customers to use the, the products, basically. Last year, I worked for Metafinance three years. Last year, I decided to found my own company, I, which is called Design with Value. And now I help startups, on the one hand, to get new customers, but also to retain customers. And Franzi, I don't know about you, but I know many startups who have a great idea, but in the end, they are just not successful, right? They don't get the traction they need. They cannot get the customers they need to be successful. And that's really a pity, actually. That's really sad because they have a great idea. They really solve a customer problem. And that's where I want to help them. I want to help them to get new customers and retain customers that they can be successful and that, they, that their ideas can really be successful and be part of our lives. So that's my motivation why I, why I want to help those companies. And basically what I do from a day-to-day -day living, I help them improve conversion rate. I help them to find new marketing channels to get new customers, but also the second part to retain customers, right? For example, if you launch an app and in the first week you have like 100,000 new people who downloaded the app, that's great. And you feel great as a founder, but let's say a week later, two weeks later, three weeks later, 20% of those people drop off, 20% of those people churn, that's bad. So you can really see how important retention is. And that's why I also focus on retention and not, not just customer acquisition. Okay. So before you work, I guess, in a large company. So how many, how many people were there in your department? Metafinance is actually a consulting business. So Metafinance as a wholly owned subsidiary of Allianz Technology SE helps with new innovative stuff, right? It's not just about design. So in my design department, there were five people and we were completely responsible for all design, which has been done or which was required in Metafinance. So we had like many different jobs in Allianz at Metafinance. Mm, so we were five people in the design apartment, but we were pretty, pretty much just doing all the design stuff. 
but you have to keep in mind that MetaFinance itself is actually a consulting business. And this little design department was built because MetaFinance decided, okay, we need some designers in this company as well, right? Even though we have a consulting business here, user experience is such an important topic. Let's bring some designers in here as well. Yeah. And then you went to the, you create your own company when you were on your own or you had some coworkers. I want to just to explore a little bit those differences between being a part of a large system and then starting on your own. Yes. I founded Design with Value last year on my own because the reason for this was I wanted to focus more on SaaS companies and startups. It was a great experience to work in a big company, right? As this in this design department, design department with like four colleagues, it was a great experience, especially because you learn a lot about the stuff, about the workflow in big companies, right? Allianz is the biggest insurance company in Germany and you gain a lot of new experiences there. That was great. But for me, the motivation to start his own company was basically to help startups and SaaS companies to become successful and bring their ideas to life. And that's why I decided to start my own company. I work as a freelancer and now work with different companies all over the globe and help them to get new customers, basically. Okay. And maybe what are a few main differences between working in a large system and working, let's say, uh, in a system when everything is already established and then helping a young obsessed company, a startup. So I would say the main difference is the speed. So when you work in a big company, there are more revision rounds, more iterations. And what's very important, a great learning experience for me was you have to keep more stakeholders in mind, right? When you work at Allianz, there are so many stakeholders, investors, you have to keep in mind before you really develop a software or develop a product. On the other hand, when we talk about startups, you can basically build something and then release it the next week. And this speed is really important because you have this, you need to have this testing mindset. You have to build something, test it, fail, redo it, iterate, and then become successful in the end. In big companies, on the other hand, you have those established workflows. You have to keep in, you have to work with these workflows. It takes much longer, but you have a bigger audience you can reach in the end, right? So this is not an issue at bigger companies. You already have an established company. Uh, an established audience you can reach at startups. You don't have this audience, but you can build stuff much more easily, much more, fa much faster. Um, so this thing you are mentioning, so the testing, uh, building, moving fast. Uh, when I was uh, going through your social media posts, I often came to the term a product-led uh, growth. Uh, so is, how is this connected with product-led growth and what is product-led growth? Yeah, so product-led growth is basically a term which has been out there for quite a while now. Nowadays, it's, it has become more and more important for SaaS companies because they can utilize it better. So think about product-led growth like you want to buy a car, for example. You don't buy a car without testing it up front, right? You go to a car shop and you test drive it before you really want to buy it. And that's basically what product-led growth is. You give a free product to your, to your customers or to potential customers, let them try it out, and then they can decide if they want to buy it or not. There are so many websites online where you have like a call to action button, which, which says like, book a demo with us, for example. And that's a huge conversion killer because when I want to try a product, I don't want to book a, a demo version, right? I, I mean, a, a demo call with a sales guy or with a manager. I just want to test the product when I'm free, when I want to do it. And that's a huge issue for many companies out there, actually. And product-led growth ha has a different approach to that. So for example, you go to a website, you download the free product and you test it. And when you like it, you keep using it. And in the end, 
eventually you may you might you might want to to pay for it right and that's basically what product-led growth does it shifts from book a demo with us to try it out and if you like it you can you can just use it and then eventually you can upgrade it and you can pay for the the service okay so one one really interesting uh, thing you mentioned so we have um, a free trial and then we have a user and user signs up and you said if you like it you purchase it so i would say in in the industry there is a, this term so product qualified lead uh, or so something like this um, can you explain what is this and and how to discover it and what is the role of that moment in the user journey so what does product qualified lead actually mean it means that you have a target audience in mind and you know exactly which people are probably going to buy or pay for your product and that's important to know because you cannot put your marketing efforts into all the leads out there. Let's say a thousand people sign up for your product. You need to basically know, okay, these people are most probably going to buy our product because that's important for your marketing. That's important for your text you're using on your website, your wording, the images you're using on your website. So that's one thing. What's important in product-led growth is the time to value. That's really an important term. So what does time to value mean? It means how long does it take a customer to find value in your product. And the thing is many products, many services take too long to get customers to this certain moment. It's the so-called aha moment, this magic moment where people find value in your service and people just jump off, they drop off, right? So the thing is, or the important thing I want to give to our audience here is try to make your time to value as short as possible. So for example, when somebody downloads your app or downloads the software, help people to be successful, help, help people to become successful as fast as possible, because otherwise they will just jump off. And when you help people to become successful, when you help people to find this value in your service, then that's where they will stick, right? They will keep your, using your product and they will eventually try to, or they will eventually upgrade to a higher pricing plan. But it's really about this time to value. If it takes too long, people will churn. So try to make this time to value as short as possible. Yeah, can you can we go a little bit more? Can we be um, can we go more deep here? So, how 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 do you? Let's say we have an app. Do you use any tools to measure this? So, how do you maybe get feedback from your users? How how are you discovering when a user uh, reach aha moment? Yes, that's a great question. So, how do you track it? Because tracking is very important. There are certain tools you can use. Of course, you can go use Google Analytics, you can use Firebase, whatever. Use Most important thing is track it. I've worked with companies before who don't track it at all, and they want like an external consultant, a growth hacker to help them improve their business. That's not possible because it's just guessing work, right? You need to track your numbers because then you know exactly where, the, where do people jump off, where can I improve the user experience so people stick to my product? So how can you find out about your aha pro moment? Because that's the moment you want people to get to. Just ask your customers, right? Release your product, you will have your first customers, and then go to the people who use your product the most, right? And ask them, okay, dear customer, what's most valuable to you in our product? What do you like most about it? And they will tell you the answers. They will, for example, tell you, okay, I like X, Y, and Z. I really enjoy X, Y, and Z. And then you can use that and try to get people as fast as possible to X, Y, and Z. Let's make an example. For example, Twitter, right? When you ask people, 
dear customer, let's say we are Twitter, dear customer, what do you like most about our service? They say, okay, I like that I can follow people. I can see what people are doing there, right? I like what people are posting on Twitter. What are you going to do as Twitter? You're trying to get people to follow other people, right? So you make recommendations. Hey, dear customer, maybe you follow X, Y, and Z. Maybe you follow like this person and that person. And when they start following, they get to this aha moment because they will see all the tweets those people posted. So re it's really about asking your customers, what do you value in our product? And with that answer answers in mind, you can like draft your user experience in a way that people reach this moment as soon as possible. And the interesting thing about that is that if you ask five people, you might get five different answers. The aha moment is not just one moment that everybody experiences the same. It may be one moment for customer number A or customer number one. It may, might be another experience for customer number two. And these are really the insights you need before you draft your onboarding, before you try to improve your service. You need to ask your customers. And with these insights in mind, you can design a user experience that gets people very quickly to this aha moment. So, and I, I just guess, so this is somehow then connected with what you start with. So with the tracking. So once you, you are, you have to ask your people either via interviews or via surveys, what's the, what's, what are meaningful actions? So what are those aha moments? And then you are, you start to track to, you start tracking those aha moments and then you start improving the user journey for the future customers so that they reach those aha moments as fast as possible. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, it's all about tracking in the first place. Afterwards, ask your customers, what do you value most in our product? I wouldn't ask for the aha moment because basically nobody knows what's that, what that is, right? So ask people, what do you value most in our product? They will give you an answer. It might surprise you in the end. And then... And, with, so, sorry, this yeah. would be just one question survey. Oh, so no, no, no. I, no, no, no. I would just always ask, like, what do you value most in our product? Why do you value that? How often do you use that? How often X, Y, and Z? Just try to get the why. Ask more about that. It's not, in the best case, you ask them personally, not via a Google Sheet survey, whatever. Ask them so personally. Interviews. Interviews, do a call with them. Ask the best customers, the customers who used your product for, yeah, for quite a time. And then you get those insights, but it's not so like one. What one about if a, if a startup is so young that they don't have the, 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 the product, that the product is new, for example, you don't yes. have a um, huge history. Yeah. So I hope before you start your product, you have done your, your user research and you don't start with uh, just one idea in mind, right? You need to go to the market, get validation, ask customers, do you like this product? And when you get this validation, you quickly see, okay, where do people find value in this product? But you need to validate it afterwards as well. So let's say you start a new, you have an idea, right? And you want to really push this idea. You want to publish this app, but before you even publish this app, go to the market, talk to people who have this product, because you, I hope you're solving a pain point, right? A customer problem. So you need to know your target audience, go to your target audience and ask them, Hey, do you experience this problem? How do you actually solve it right now? Would this solution we are providing help you solve your problem? Once you have the, those answers, you can build your first user experience in your app in a way that you already bring people quite quickly to the aha moment. But in the end, you still have to validate it and still have to improve it. Because when you see, okay, I've released this app, people are jumping off, people are not experiencing this aha moment quickly enough. Maybe there are some hurdles, for example, uh, second confirmation mail you sent those people before they can use it you think you need to think about how can we remove those hurdles that we can get people to this aha moment 
as fast as possible. So it's just getting user feedback in the beginning, but validating it like in an in a iterative process. Okay, let's let's assume that we reach the aha moment. Yes. So what happens next? How how this knowing that the user reached aha moment, how how this changes our behavior? So what we have to do in order to now get this user to start paying? Well, get this user to start paying is a different thing, I would say. Getting people to the aha moment, aha moment is important that people continuously use your product. That's the first thing you need to keep in mind, right? So that's why I meant like those hurdles you have up front. If you have too many hurdles, people will drop off, people will churn. So once we said, okay, people got to this aha moment, they like our service. How can you make them pay for your service? When you're using a freemium model, for example, you can use, let's say you have an app and there are certain features that are for free, which is great, which already provide a value. These features keep our customers, right? They just maybe use it because we have enabled these features for free. But for example, you can enable or you can provide different features, add-ons for a certain price. And when those features are that valuable to our, to our customers, they will just buy for it, right? I mean, I'm actually, I don't pay for apps, but I, I, I've used certain apps where I really paid for certain features, right? So when you have a freemium model, that's a great way to get people to buy or to pay for your service. So that's the second part you need to, you need to keep in mind. When you get a new client, how do you find, let's say, those steps where the funnel is leaking? <laughs> that's what I meant with you, you need to track it, right? I cannot go to a company and say, okay, it's X, Y, and Z, your retention is bad. You need to track it. Google Analytics will tell you or any tracking tool, Adobe Analytics, I don't know what you're using, but track it. Track your numbers and then you will see which part of the funnel is low. And that's basically the first thing you need to do before you start experimenting, <clears throat> before you start like improving your service, track it and see where are the numbers low. And for example, we have an onboarding, we have an app, right? We have an onboarding experience, five screens, let's say typical onboarding screen, you have to swipe from left to right, and then you see the next screen, then you get really to the app itself. So let's say we see, we track those steps, we track each step and we see, okay, people jump off on the third screen of the onboarding part. So what do we do about it? And then the important part is to build some or design some experience, uh, not experiences, experiments. So for example, I experiment could, could be, okay, let's delete step number three in this onboarding experience and get people faster to the app itself. And then let's see how the numbers are. And it's important to make quick experiments, ex ex experiments, try it, iterate, and then you will be able to improve your, 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 your product. You will improve your numbers, your conversion rate, whatever, you, whatever it is you're trying to improve. But the important part is you need to build experiments, try it out. And then it's not like, yeah. it, it's not like you, it, it's, it's not like the one thing. It's more like, it's more like you do many stuff and then it will compound in the end. So often when, for example, in my experience, when, when we are dealing with clients and so the experimenting is kind of a buzzword and everyone is talking about it. And so then found the founders, they have an impression that they have to experiment, do the experiments all the time. And then they just experiment because of the experiments, not because they want to improve something meaningfully. Uh, and then they just changing the button colors or adding uh, some copy or something. So maybe uh, if you can give us some tips on what, where to run experiments. So how to find meaningful exper experiments? Absolutely. I think it all starts with what do you want to achieve? That's the first question here. 
And for example, when you define your goals clearly, when you say, okay, we want to increase our conversion rate on our website, then you can see, okay, what's currently hindering our users to convert. And one thing could be they don't see the, the call to action button because it's like the, the contrast is too little or it's out of the viewport, right? Then you can dra draft experiments based on this hypo hypothesis. So let's say a hypothesis is always a three component thing. It's an if then because, and you draft it like this, for example, if we put the call to action button above the fold, right, where people can see it, then we expect a conversion rate increase of 2% because people can see the button. So that's basically how you draft your hypothesis based on the goal you have. That's the first thing you need to do when you start to design an experiment. The next thing you need to do, of course, when you have like, you shouldn't draft like one, one hypothesis. I recommend like drafting 10, for example. So you have like a, a backup, a backlog of different experiments you can actually use. And then when you have like 10 hypotheses, 10 potential experiments, you rank them based on how much does it cost actually? How long does it take to see meaningful results, right? Or I don't know, how much return do we actually expect here? And then you rank those experiments and then you find like one, two or three experiments you really want to quickly do. You build action steps that you can do this or you can really do this experiment and then you track it and then you see how it improved, how the numbers improved. And that's basically how you draft experiments. But it's all, it, it always starts with the, with the goal in mind. How often does it happen that you actually confirm the hypothesis? Is this like usually or not usually? And, and, and what think, you do when you don't confirm the hypothesis? Yeah, I think it doesn't happen as often as I would wish it happened. But that's just because you have like smaller experiences. Of course, when you have a website, for example, there are best practices, right? And many startups who just have started they don't use those best practices so you can go in there with my experience and i can say okay if we change the call to action button i'm pretty sure the conversion rate will go up or if we put like a second call to action button here i'm pretty sure the conversion rate will go up so these are safe bets let's call it like that but when you have like a more established company it might get more difficult and you cannot of course you cannot guarantee that that the conversion rate will go up but there are best practices so i would say Keep in mind, you don't have to make every experiment a success. It's not about that. It's making, it's about using many different experiments and then like the improvements will compound, right? Let's say, for example, you make an experiment, you're an experiment, you're not successful. Okay. Let's use the, the version we used before, but then build a new experiment. And let's say with this new experiment, we increase the conversion rate by 2%. That's great. So let's start with this new design now and based on this new design let's build a new experiment so that's basically the workflow how we how we do it and if it doesn't work i mean what do you do you get you go back to the old design and build new hypothesis build a new experiment and just try to improve on a weekly monthly basis depending on how big your team is but the important thing here is definitely and that's some i think something that especially big companies get wrong it's not about getting the best solution right away that's most of the time, not possible. It's about, it's about testing. It's an iterative process, making mistakes, but also learning from those mistakes. And that's why it's so important, possible. So, so, so important to, to track your experiments and see how the different changes actually affected your 
numbers yeah. in the end. I, I would just like to underline this sentence. So getting back to the old design, because what often happens is people design an experiment and then they put uh, energy into it. Uh, a lot of people is working on some smaller details uh, and then we go live and well, everything, everyone thinks, okay, this will be a success, but then it's not. And then it's so hard to say, okay, that's actually not an improvement. So we have to go back. So then there are different variations. People start to saying, okay, but you know, actually this thing is still better or something. And they just keep the not, not non-working um, um, version of, of the design, either onboarding experience, email, website, it doesn't matter. So it's hard for a team to, to openly say we were not successful. But at least in my experience, experiences, at least half of, of the experiments we are doing are actually not successful. So we don't improve anything. And that's always a huge learning. So you think, okay, if we add or remove this step or uh, put it in that way, we will have a, a success, but you're just wrong. And it's uh, your, your ego is suffering. Absolutely. I mean, it's a learning process, right? You live and you learn basically, and you do new, st new stuff and you see how it goes. But I... I know 100% what you mean. I mean, I'm a designer and when you do something, it's your baby, you know, you put a lot of effort into it and you really want to be, want to be this, the thing, the design to be successful. And if it's not, that's really something that, that I don't like, right? Because you, you've done yeah, your best basically. But in the end, it's about numbers. It's a numbers game and you have to check the numbers. Is the conversion rate better or not? If it's worse, go back to the old design. If it stays the same, I don't know, let's think about it. Let's talk about it, but it's a numbers game in the end. There, there's no place for ego because you, in the end, you need to make this, the company a success. It's not about your design. It's also something you learn when you're more experienced as a designer. It's never about your design. It's not your design. It's about the company's success. Design is not here to make things beautiful. It's about here to improve business metrics. It's about here to improve KPIs. The next question is maybe a little bit challenging for you, but um, based on what we just said, I would like you to share with us maybe some horror stories. So some stories when you wanted to improve things, but or maybe, you know, uh, or your department or something, but then things just went wrong or didn't work. And what have you learned out of those experiences? Oh, yeah, I love horror stories. So... I think the biggest horror story I, I remember back in the days, uh, first startup I, I was, and I was part of the, of the founders team. We had a great idea and we were convinced that we were really, really solving a customer problem. Uh, we didn't do any market research, no market validation. We were just like, okay, this is a problem we are currently facing ourselves. Let's just do it. And we put a lot of time and money into it. And basically what we found out in the end, when we released it, it was that nobody used it. Nobody wanted to use it. And that was a tough time. I have to be honest here, because like, just as I said, it's, it's like your baby, right? You put a lot of time and effort into it. You want to be the thing to be successful, but the so biggest you were what you were too, too focused on the product. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say we didn't do any market research, any user validation. We didn't ask anybody before, hey, is this really something that solves your pain? And I think that's a big learning. I I got there because nowadays I always, when somebody starts a new idea, I ask them, what customer pain are you actually solving? 
how many people did you ask that have this problem? Who's your target audience? That's the first, that's the most important thing. And if I've asked these questions back in the day, the first thing I would have said is we need to do some market validation before we get developer, because we were already starting to develop the thing. We were thinking about, okay, let's release it half in, or in a half a half a year, but without any market validation, there is really no reason to do it. You need this market validation. You need to get your first potential customers before you even start to build this thing. And that was the biggest issue or the biggest problem we did back in the day. But it was a great learning at the same time for me. I will never do this mistake again. And also for the startups I work with, that's also some, or yeah, always something I, I ask them before they, before they actually start to develop the stuff. And so, uh, you ask this a startup and then, uh, what's the response? Do they go to the people and talk to them or uh, do they stick with the, with an idea? You mean back in the day in my startup? Yeah, today, when you, you ah. get a um, client and, uh, you know, a startup and they have an idea and if uh, <laughs> you start working with them and you see that there is no market validation, so, how do you make them go out? To be honest, I don't have to make them go out. I'm here as a consultant, as a UX designer to tell them what's the best practices, right? What they do with this information, that's completely up to them. So I've seen a startup who has done no market validation at all, no user research in the first place to just develop this product because they had this issue themselves and they were successful. So that's great. But I would definitely recommend every startup, every SaaS company to think about before you develop the, a new startup, think about who is your customer, what customer pain are you solving? And is the way you want to solve it the right way for your customers? Because only then you can really build a solution which fits your customers. That's the most important thing. And when you build something like in a, in a tunnel or in a bunker and you, you don't think about your customers, you just do it for yourself. In the end, you will wake up and nobody will use your product. And that's really uh, not a good sign. But do you think it's uh, that is uh, it's uh, that is it possible to do a successful startup or a company without doing the unsuccessful one first? <laughs> That's a good question. That, I've never heard that before. Yeah. Well, I, I, you're you're actually right. So many people who have built a successful startup have built unsuccessful startups before, right? So I think you get a lot, a lot of learnings along the way. You will not do these mistakes again, just as I did back in the day. Every new product I do, I'm currently working on a new idea right now. I want to release this year as well. So we did the market validation and we asked our customers, potential customers, does this really solve your pain? Um, I think these learnings are just so important, but I think you live and you learn, right? You make those mistakes, you learn from it, and then you can build something successful. But if you build a company and you have some experienced people in your team, mm, I think you can build a startup right away and be successful. You just need to know, you just need to have the knowledge up, um, in the beginning. And if you have a good partner in your team and your founder's team, he will tell you, okay, let's do the market research upfront before we hire any developers. Um, so um, the summer is here and um, the COVID numbers are down. So I think everyone is now optimistic, uh, optimistic about future and, you know, we are start the conversations about, you know, what uh, will happen now after the COVID. Um, so uh, maybe I, I would like to, to hear your thoughts on, on the future. So how this pandemic, pandemic is influenced our business and uh, what will stay 
and how everything will change? What do you think in, in the, let's say in the next two to five years? I would say two things. One thing, of course, the remote work, but many people think that remote work will be just something that's over when like the pandemic is over, right? People will go back to the office and work from there. But the interesting thing is, for example, Allianz will keep 40%, 40% of their employees at home office. And that's something really game changing because the Allianz is like a huge company, right? With like old school processes, old school workflows. And to keep 40% of employees at home is a, is a game changer. And I think many companies will do the same in the future. So remote work will become more and more popular. Companies see, okay, it does work from home as well. People are maybe even more effective when working from home. So that's one thing. And the second thing, which is, I think, more important for our talk today is the spike in audio. For example, podcasts right now is taking off. Many people are doing podcasts themselves. Many people are listening to podcasts. There is a really big spike in audio. Also, Clubhouse is like peaking right now, right? So this, the, the shift from, I think, events, live events, like we are doing it right now, live streaming to the, the shift to social media platforms where audio is in the focus is really big. And I think that's a great chance for, for us because we can make great connections with people we've never seen before, never heard before. We can talk to them and audio is a great way to make a personal connection, right? When you just text somebody on LinkedIn, for example, there is no personal connection. There is no emotion involved, but when you use audio, you can get this personal connection. And that's something that's really, really great. And also for startups, it's a great way, a great channel or audio is a great way to connect to new, to, to your customers and really build customer relationships that people will stick with your product and use it long-term basically. So audio is, I think something that's going to spike even more in the future. Uh, we can see it with Clubhouse, Otter, Yak, for example. So there are many, many examples who are utilizing audio more and more. Okay, perfect. Uh, where can people find you? Yeah. So if you want to connect with me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Oscar Bader, or just have a look at my web website, designwithvalue.com, and let's have a chat. And what's your pref preferred way? Should people uh, send you a video message with audio or just type? <laughs> you can you can type on LinkedIn. That's perfectly fine. I'm happy for every video, but you can type as well. Okay. Uh, thank you, Oscar, for this conversation. Um, uh, I hope we uh, give out some valuable information. I really enjoyed it and I hope we will see each other again. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it.